Welcome to the Modern Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Parsons. I'm a certified holistic health coach, intuitive eating specialist, and health at every size advocate. Cozy up with me each week for empowering conversations with ambitious women as we share real stories around our relationships with food, body, and moving through life in the modern world. Hello, welcome back. I have such a great episode today and I want to check in with you. I want to send you love. I want to just connect with you, but I also want to dive right in because this is a really robust conversation and one that I will absolutely be revisiting and replaying again and again, no doubt. There's just so, so many tips and just insight and suggestions and and expert advice in this conversation with my guest, Jin Ong. Jin is so beautiful from the inside and out. She is so intelligent. She is fabulous at what she does. Just a really, really gifted osteopath um, and therapist. And we actually are in a mastermind together. And so we've We've been in each other's lives for the past year, and I've just loved everything that she has shared in our group, and I think she's wonderful, and I was so, so giddy that she was open to coming on the show and sharing her personal body image story and also some expertise in this conversation too. So let me tell you a little bit about Jen. Jen is an osteopath and psychosomatic therapist and a mother to one. She is the founder of MetaMed Clinics in Wanaka and Queenstown, which is a holistic and integrative osteopathy and chiropractic clinic. Uh, Jen is also obsessed with the mind-body connection and how your physical body is a manifestation of your emotional state. She believes that many people can return to or remain in a state of health, wellness, and fulfillment when they learn to become more aware and listen to their body. She also hosts the Art of Listening to Your Body podcast. She loves to dig deep, speak about the unspoken, and help people process unresolved emotions that hold them back from living the life that they truly want. She's also a business coach to to health and wellness practitioners that want to build a sustainable and fulfilling business that truly makes a difference to people people's lives simply by expressing who they truly are and valuing themselves for the work that they do. This girl is on fire and everything that we talk about today is is really relevant to her bio that I just shared with you. We talked specifically about how to say no and set healthy boundaries. Uh, which is a really challenging part of life in general and something that is also incredibly important and setting no and saying no and setting healthy boundaries is one of the best ways that we can take care of ourselves and really learn how to build a deep connection with our body and listen to our body in a really profound way. We talk all about this in our conversation, how to really take practical steps to start being more comfortable saying no and setting your own boundaries in your life. Why this is so important. We talk, we talk a lot about normalizing negative emotions, um, recognizing emotions and the effects that they have on the body we talk about anger. We talk about clearing out anxiety. We talk about just techniques for listening to your body and different ways that we can implement these techniques based on where your emotions are showing up in your body and how to recognize this. This is, this is a really hands-on episode, probably one of the most hands-on episodes that we've had so far in this podcast. So I hope you enjoy absolutely listen to this once and then maybe consider going back and taking some notes. I, I'll be honest. I'm, (laughs) I hear people say this all the time on podcasts. I think I've done it maybe a couple of times where I've actually gone back and taken notes, but I'm absolutely going to, for 
this conversation. There are, there are so many pieces that are relevant for life. And even if you're not taking notes, just pausing and reflecting and letting things sink in as they might need to right now in your life. So just go into this with an open mind and open heart, um, sending you so much love. We will be sure to connect all of Jen's social media handles and website information, all the ways that you can get in touch with her, as well as everything that we have going on in our community in the show notes. So check that out after you listen and enjoy this episode. Here is the lovely Jen Ong. Jin Ong. Hello, love. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Good yeah. To connect with you. you too. You too. I am so excited about this conversation, especially just everything that we literally just talked about before hitting record and all the things we're about to get into. So thank you for being here and let's dive in. Sound good? Sure. Go for it. Cool. So we always start with the first question around your body awareness moment. So can you just share with all the listeners, what that looked like, that moment that you realized, hey, I'm in a body and this means something in the culture that I'm living in, good, bad, indifferent. What did that look like for you? How did it shape your body image? Mm. So when you mentioned that, I don't actually think of a body part, but I think of what my pain point or my weak spot is in my body and that's my skin. And so I remember when I was probably 13, 14 actually, and I got my first couple of pimples on my skin, on my forehead. And that has been the thing that I have really battled with over the years, but I feel like I've overcome now. And so I think part of it was because my mum was a bit of a perfectionist and she was a cosmetologist mm. and I don't think I was actually very concerned with my skin, but then she wanted to pick my pimples. She wanted to make them go away. And then that started to bring my attention to wanting them to go away. And in fact, they just started getting worse and worse. And I would say it was very low grade pimples. It wasn't even acne at the time, but me also wanting to be a bit of a perfectionist, I wanted to have this clear skin and I didn't know a lot about natural medicine at that point in time. So I went to the doctor who then put me on antibiotics. And now I know that that ruins your gut and I had to do a lot of work healing that. And then that didn't work for all parts of my body because it started happening on my back as well and on my chest. And I was getting very self-conscious about it. I always wanted to cover it up and I couldn't work out how to get rid of it. So then I ended up on the pill and I guess this is another body image moment where uh, at that time I gained 10 kilos, most likely in fluid. I remember just eating English muffins with jam and cream cheese and <laughs> just gorging on this stuff. It was like I had these insatiable cravings. And yes, yeah, so I gained 10 kilos at that point in time. And then that didn't work. So then I went back to the doctor and I ended up with a specialist, a dermatologist, who then put me on more antibiotics, more creams, all this conventional stuff has been thrown at me. And then I ended up on this medication called Rakutane, which is a really strong synthetic vitamin A, which is not good for you. You're not allowed to get pregnant while you're on it because your baby can have birth defects. Wow. And they make you take the pill to make sure that you don't um, fall pregnant accidentally because it's such a high risk that this is going to happen. And um, it also affects your liver, um, which is another weak point for me. And I always say the liver is that organ of anger. And I remember being a really fiery, angry teenager that would just yell and scream. <laughs> and yeah, so I went through all of this. And now when I look back at it, my skin wasn't actually that bad. But I got put on all these medications, which probably I feel did more damage to my body. And I had to do a lot more repair work. And the thing with Rakutane was it was meant to fix my skin. And it was amazing while I was on it. But as soon as I came off any of these things, my skin would just get bad again. And I found myself in this really reactive cycle, very self-conscious, even though the pimples didn't necessarily cause me physical pain. I think that you can only really empathize with someone who's got skin issues when you've had it yourself. Yeah. Um, because it was more the self-esteem and, you know, the, you know, my perfectionist tendencies and how I felt, you know, what did other people think of me? And I felt disgusting having skin issues. 
And anyway, so I found myself in this cycle and I th- thought, okay, well, when I hit 20, my skin will be good. And then, okay, maybe when I'm 22, 25, 30, when is my skin going to get good? When am I going to grow out of this hormonal stage? Mm-hmm. And I think that being on the pill and all those antibiotics actually messed with my system when it was trying to balance itself out. And it just prolonged the whole process. And so my skin would break out. I would find myself going to the doctor and getting the quick fix, getting the pill. And then one day I just decided, this is like 10 years on the pill. I thought this is not good for my body. And I was actually getting all these other horrible symptoms that I went to the doctor for. And then they were just treating the symptoms. And all I had to do was come off the pill. I lost the weight, all my other issues, um, skin problems, were going away apart from the pimples and yeah it was a real journey and then I worked out that okay this is not working so I got off everything my skin just broke out like crazy and I thought I'll just let it come out it's got to get worse before it gets better mm-hmm. it's um, just adjusting everything that I've suppressed but then it still <laughs> just kept on getting worse and worse and I hit a turning point it was in my late 20s I moved to Brisbane in Australia. I'm originally from Melbourne. I moved to Brisbane and it's incredibly hot and humid over there. And my work was amazing. The money was great. I was making really amazing friends over there who I still connect with, but it was hot and it was humid. And I know that I hate heat and humidity and heat would really trigger my anger as well. And it was at this point everything just got terrible. It's the time in my life where my health was the worst. And this is about eight years ago now, but it's the thing that I'm most grateful for because it opened so many doors and it opened my eyes to what was really going on. So environmentally with my liver being my weak spot, my skin being my weak spot, I have heat and humidity in my body and putting me into a hot and humid environment, everything like in a month, my skin just broke out worse than it ever had when I was a teen. And this is when I was like, right, this is real acne now. What I had was nothing. And I broke out in all these massive painful cysts that would take months to go away all over my face, my back. And as a therapist, I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm such a fraud because I'm meant to be the healthy one. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of therapist guilt out there, but you know, we do get unwell as well. And it just, I couldn't work it out because everything in my life was perfect, but it was just the environment that wasn't suited to me. And so thankfully I was only working there for about six months and I then moved back to Wanaka in New Zealand. It's incredibly dry here. We get snow and I love skiing and all my skin problems healed up. And I was like, oh, okay, this is really um, interesting. I've got a new body. I'm going to go back to Brisbane now, six months later, and I'm going to work again. And of course, I'm not going to have the same issues. And then again, one month in, everything just hit me. No way. And I not only did I get acne, I was getting ulcers on my eye. So I couldn't really open my eye when I was treating patients. I had a lot of pain in my neck and my shoulders. And I would have some in the mornings, I knew I had inflammation in my body. I couldn't walk down the stairs. I'd have to hold on to the handrail because my ankles got so stiff. Um, I would get random fevers. I would get unwell probably every few weeks. And then I broke out in this massive rash <laughs> all over my body. But what was really interesting was at this point, I had learned a lot about the emotional connection is that I broke out in this rash across all of my joint lines and in my belly button. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like I've got so much stress in my body and I'm heading towards triggering some sort of autoimmune response in my body. And I know that this is good from treating patients who have got these weird autoimmune conditions. I thought, what is going on? And I knew at that point that the environment was playing such a huge part in how I was feeling. So I knew that I had to leave Brisbane, but I also knew that this was a real turning point in my career. So I was an osteopath. I was treating patients with musculoskeletal conditions and I wasn't able to communicate to the chronic pain patients who weren't acknowledging the stress in their life or their own emotions. So I happened to meet a therapist who was going to help me with my neck and shoulder pain but he opened my eyes to what was going on. And it was really about what I learned about skin was it is about your 
boundaries between your internal world and your external world and how people perceive you. And I could see the things that were going on in my patients, but I was too scared to speak up about it. Mm. So for me, what I learned was it was really about how am I expressing myself in my profession and in my day-to-day life? And how have I or haven't I dealt with anger in my life as well? So yeah, I then thought, you know what? I've tried everything. If it means I have to meditate for two hours a day to clear my skin, I'll do that. I was focusing on all the things to do. I was seeing naturopaths, I was seeing herbalists and all these things were helping me, but only while I was on it. So I knew that I wasn't really dealing with the issue, which was the emotions, which was hard. And it was about putting myself out there in the world. It was about doing what I really wanted to. And I thought, okay, well, this is really hard, but if it's going to fix my skin, I'm going to do it. Mm. (laughs) So I knew exactly how it was I wanted to practice, how I wanted to communicate. And I guess we'll go into that a little bit more. And I moved countries and I'm living in Monaco where it's dry. It's cold in winter, which I love. Um, It's hot in summer and my skin does trigger a little bit then, but nowhere near as bad as it ever used to. Um, And yeah, my skin is absolutely fine. And a lot of people would go, I never guessed that you would have skin issues. I would never guess. Yeah, I'm looking at you right now. I would never guess. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, thankfully, it's not on my face anymore. (laughs) And now and then I will get itchy skin or I will get um, a pimple and I will know what it's about. And I know that it's my body telling me that I'm not living in line with my values or something's getting too stressful. So then I need to rejig it rather than stick a cream on it, take the pill or, you know, anything like that. This is so wild. I, this is a crazy story, crazy in a good way. And I, I also am curious too, where does gut health play a role in this and also health Mm. of your liver and all of these things? Because I, I think, I think that it is so important and there's so many other questions that I have around the emotional aspect around our skin health, our, our health in general, but also these are two important pieces of the puzzle as well Mm. too. And so where did you start to make the connection that there was some work to be done in those two areas around gut health and and your liver health and all of those things and just your internal organs that were sacrificing uh, during this time as well too? Yeah, absolutely. So thankfully, Getting into osteo, I then started to connect with more health practitioners and I have this really amazing friend, um, Helen, who's a naturopath. She was very gentle on me um, around my diet, which I thought was amazing, which I now know wasn't very good at that time. Uh, And when I came off the pill and came off those conventional solutions and realized that I still wasn't getting better and my body wasn't rebalancing, she brought my awareness to the fact that maybe all the conventional medicine I had taken had actually messed with my body. Mm. And so hormonally, like as soon as I got my period, I was pretty much on the pill and my body never got to settle into its own rhythm. And then taking antibiotics, um, I never realized it would have such a long lasting effect on my gut microbiome and putting me out of balance. So, um, and then again, taking the Rakutane, which affects my liver, which affects my metabolism, my hormones. So I think gut health is super important. So I had to do a massive cleanup of my diet. I was actually also want, um, I knew that I wanted to have a baby, but I knew that my hormones were a mess and that how hard it is to actually work on that while you're pregnant or while you're breastfeeding. So I wanted to do the work preconception So I went on some pretty strong herbs and I cleaned up my diet in an effort to rebalance my gut. I had stool tests done. I really looked into it in depth. I spent a lot of money, but it's been totally worth it. And I think it was only six months where I was really disciplined with it all because Mm -hmm. prior, which is probably what you see is I tried every diet out there. I got really controlling. Mm. I went on raw diets. I went on vegan diets, gluten-free, dairy-free. And dairy does still trigger me and gluten still makes me tired, but I'm not super strict um, anymore. And I could see that emotionally I was trying to pull on medications, natural things and diets to Mm. fix it. And again, it came back to emotions. So gut health and working on that 
is really important, but I think emotions come before that. But sometimes you need to get the symptoms down, use conventional medicine or use natural medicine to get things under control. So then you then have room and space to deal with your emotions. I 100% agree. I, I think, I don't, and I don't think that we talk nearly enough about it, how important our emotional health is. And so I am right there with you. I also think one of the things that I love the most about the work that you do is really the mind body connection and listening to our bodies and really being able to bring everything together physically, mentally, and emotionally in a way that just makes sense and, and flows together. So it, just from hearing your story, just want to make sure I have this correct when I'm hearing you. The root cause essentially was just this pent up anger that you didn't feel like you could express. And also just that desire to express really what you wanted in life. Yeah. Um, so what did you want in life? What do you like looking back now in hindsight, what were some of those mm. things that you felt like you had to hold back around expressing or, um, you just weren't giving yourself permission to lean into? Yeah, there's quite a few factors and I guess I'll explain this a little bit more. So I work a lot with Ayurvedic doshas on a very basic level. And so there's the Vata, Pitta, Kapha and my dosha that I'm my primary dosha is Pitta, which... Me too. Yeah, which is probably why we're business owners. <laughs> <laughs> so that Pitta personality is like in leadership roles. They like to make decisions and can be very focused when in balance. And what's interesting is the um, health predisposition for someone who's a Pitta is skin issues like acne, eczema, psoriasis, um, all those inflammatory arthritis kind of conditions, heartburn, oh. reflux. Oh my gosh. And, wow. Yeah, well, that makes so much sense because it is so fiery and it is yeah. like, all of those, all of those struggles are related to kind of like that fire and, and burn yep. and everything. That heat, that yeah. Anger. That's yep. so interesting. Okay, keep going. Yes. And then the emotional um, tendency for a pitta person when they get out of balance is anger. So to be really explosive, be argumentative. And I remember my parents saying, you'd make a really good lawyer because you can just argue someone down to the ground. <laughs> um, but then on the other hand, when a pitta is out of balance or too closed off, they are too scared of conflict so they don't actually engage in it. And so that would I'm be all about me. That would be me. Oh. <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> that I mean, traditionally speaking, just yep. extreme fear of conflict and confrontation. And this is not my story. This is yours. But that makes sense. I know, but it's so interesting. So interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then often it comes back to how you were brought up in your family and how was anger expressed? Was it explosive or was it that your parents didn't express anger? So either way, it's just as dysfunctional. <laughs> so it's understanding that anger is actually healthy and anger is what helps us transform things. And so I just wasn't utilizing my anger properly when I was a teen. And I remember I, this comes back to your question about culture. So I'm, my parents are Malaysian Chinese and they're not super strict Asians, but I always joke that I did grow up learning the piano and the violin <laughs> and I hated it because I was just drilled to practice and I wanted to play jazz music, but I had to do classical and I had to go through exams and it just, it wasn't me. I didn't like it. Yeah. And as soon as I could stop, I just stopped and I cut it out of my life. And um, so my mum was quite... You know, be a doctor, be an accountant, be a lawyer, be those things that you think people make a lot of money from. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. But I knew, thankfully, I knew myself well enough that I knew what I wanted to do. And I did kind of fall into osteo. But also my dad, I would say that he was quite an angry person, like would just be quite explosive, which I now can see is probably from stress and all sorts of things. Um, but after he had a bit of a scare with his heart. It was a congenital abnormality. And then he had to go and get surgery. He got into meditation and I swear he just had a second lease on life and he became the nicest person ever. And he's all about do what makes you happy, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> I wonder if I picked up some of that fiery anger from him. Um, and yeah, now I've had a bit of a shift influenced by him and other people in my life. So 
Yeah, I got into osteo not really knowing what it was. And I'm just so grateful. I think the universe is on my side at that time because it opens so many doors in terms of who I got to work with, the patients I got to meet, and they have been my biggest mentors. And through the injuries I've had, I've come mm-hmm. across amazing practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, I was, my my mum was really trying to push me in one direction. and even until I actually finished osteo and she got to meet other um, parents that had kids that were osteos, she was still not approving of what I was doing. Yeah. So I guess it was that always that conflict of, I want to do this, but I'm constantly not having my mum's approval. Mm. But I was just like, stuff it. I'm just going to do this because I know that this is what makes me happy. Mm. Um, Sorry, I've forgotten what the question was. <laughs> no, no, this is this is great. And honestly, I, I have so many questions around everything that we're talking about right now. And one thing that one thing that you said that I, I want to speak into a little bit more is that anger is a natural part of life and mm. conflict is a natural part of life and the human experience and all of these things. However, we're we're brought up in these cultures that dictate and tell us that that it's not and that we shouldn't go there and so it's all of these conflicting messages and also as as women it's constantly reinforced in us don't be the loud one don't be too pushy Mm. don't be aggressive don't be mean don't be this that and the other and and so it's easy to get caught up in that cycle of feeling like, well, anger is bad. And if I'm angry, I'm not a good person. And if I'm angry, people won't like me or whatever story we have in our our mind around that type of conflict. So how did you get to a place where you were able to make peace with anger? And what was the mindset shift for you that, that changed? Mm. So it was through my psychosomatic training and that's where I really got to embrace that emotions are just emotions. We have positive emotions, we have negative emotions and the negative emotions are normal. So the anger, the sadness, the fears that we have, and it's actually acknowledging them and allowing them to be there and having that awareness to make the connection of the things that make you angry. And so I'll probably explain this better if I explain the clients that I work with, the ones that don't allow themselves to express anger, they then start to get the skin issues, the digestive problems, all that heat because the body wants it to release. And when they're not allowing it to release in a verbal or emotional way, their body has to let it come out somewhere else. And for me, it was my skin, one of the biggest detox organs in your body. It was trying to get all this frustration and all this irritation out. I guess I wasn't being heard when I felt like I wasn't being heard at home because I'm like, I want to do this, but you're telling me I need to do something else and all this internal conflict. Um, So... Yeah, I now say I am still, I can still be an angry person and it's probably my husband and my daughter that gets the brunt of it when I get really stressed. Thankfully they, well, not that I expect my six-year-old to hold space for me, but my husband can (laughs) and he can just see it for my own issues, which can be irritating as well. Um, But I now channel my anger into my business. Like I love to transform and I love to change things. And if I'm angry about something, what can I do about it? Mm. So it's putting the energy elsewhere. And yeah, so it, for me, it was having that vision for a business, which seemed like it was a bit out of the box, but making that happen. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I thrive on that energy. How do you know when you're angry? I feel like this is an emotion where people just assume that they know what it feels like, but when but because we're we're trained to avoid it as much as possible, I don't think a lot of people do know how to recognize what anger feels like in in their in their bodies. Yeah. So yeah. how do you, how do you know for you because I know it's different for everybody, yeah. but how can you experience that now for yourself? Yeah. So I can just feel heat in my body. And when I see it in my clients, I call this the physiological response. They might get red and blotchy all over their skin and they might not be aware of it, but it's feeling the heat just rise in your body. Often anger has a prickly sensation to it as well. So it might be prickly, itchy skin. It could be that you just go and scratch yourself all the time or you go and scratch that eczema and you make it worse because you're denying that anger. So then you you put it out somewhere else, you react to it. 
Um, and mine is like verbal. I will raise my voice. I will start swearing when I'm a lot more stressed mm-hmm. and I will just like rip into my husband sometimes mm-hmm. um, when I've got that anger. Now, this is when I would say getting to that point is harmful expression of anger because um, not everyone can take it. And also that's kind of like verbal abuse. <laughs> yeah. So it is recognizing it far earlier. And so mine would be uncomfortable sensation in my body. It could be that my skin is breaking out or I start to get that rash. So that's my sign when things are out of balance. I also know that if you put me into a really hot and humid environment for long enough, my anger is much easier to trigger. Mm. So having an awareness of it and when I'm working with clients, whatever emotion they have come up, I just say, where are you feeling it? Allow that sensation to be and what does it feel like? So just recognizing and making that link that when they're going through an emotion or a trauma and we're working through it, that actually it is manifesting in their body. Yeah. Do you do trauma work as well too with clients? Can, mm. you, can you speak to that a little bit, Jen? And, and I'd love to hear your definition of trauma, big T trauma, little T trauma, and how it shows up in the body, um, especially for the clients yeah. that you support. Yes. Yeah. So I have a little spiel that I use that I think explains it really well. So I'm a big believer that your physical body is a manifestation of your emotional state and that we have all these experiences in our life, the good, the bad, these events, um, and even the traumas in our life. And trauma is very subjective to people. It can be the horrible things in our minds and it can be the stuff that, you know, just doesn't sit well with us. But no harm was actually intended, but it can be a trauma in our mind. And whenever we have these experiences, the good and the bad, they're associated with an emotion that wants to be expressed at that time. But particularly in Western society, we either don't know how to express something because of the way we were brought up, or we don't allow ourselves to express it because it's inconvenient, or we just think it's inappropriate. So we put that judgment on ourselves. Now, emotions want to, you know, be felt and then they want to be expressed. And if we don't allow it to be expressed, released or discharged in that moment in time, it gets stored in the body and it gets stored in the body as a source of stress. And we all know that we can cope with stress for a certain amount of time. Everyone has their different thresholds and you can cope with it until you can't cope anymore. And then that's when your symptoms start to arise. And this is why I love to read into, well, what physical injuries have you got? What ailments have you got? What mental disturbances have you got? And therefore, can we work out what emotion hasn't really been worked through? Mm. So what I do is I say to people, I help you process the emotions that you weren't able to process maybe from 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, I deal with things like miscarriages, abortions, stillbirths. Mm. Grief is a really common one in Western society that's not dealt with very well because um, we want to have wills and funerals and businesses that we have to tie up. And so all the attention goes there and not on the grief and the sadness that needs to be expressed. And because it gets suppressed to do all those practical things in life, it um, then gets forgotten that there's actually this feeling there. And so it's hard to tap into it, but then it starts to play out in other events in your life. So I'm all about taking people back to that event or that trauma as long as they feel safe and they're allowed to have whatever thoughts they want. They can think nasty thoughts of what they would do to someone, what they want to say to someone and express it with whatever emotion they didn't allow themselves at that time. So it could be as simple as having an argument with someone and you just backed out. You didn't want that conflict. And then you go away and you stew over it of like, I wish I had said this. I wish I had said that. And you can literally go back to that argument in your own space with yourself and you can replay it out and speak it out loud, all the things that you want to say. And so when I take people through emotional release, I say the rules are is that you don't harm other people. You don't harm yourself and you don't go and destroy things. Mm. Because sometimes we do have nasty thoughts that would harm someone. And physically, sometimes you want to do something to someone. And it's not, it's not good for anyone to go and beat someone up, go and stab them with a knife or whatever. But I create this space where you're allowed to have these thoughts, but I don't want you to act on them. But by acknowledging that you have these thoughts and being in a non-judgmental space, all of a sudden that can just help things dissipate. So I, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. And it, it sounds, uh, it sounds like deep healing and how long does it usually take to work with somebody in this capacity where you're able to go through these past experiences and, and when you're working with a patient, is it usually around something very specific or do you kind of get into one thing and that leads to another thing? What's the trajectory with your, with your clients for the most part? Yeah. So I say, I like to open the can of worms and I like to take you through the mess and the discomfort because that's what most people avoid. And even most practitioners Mm -hmm. avoid that um, because they don't know when it's going to end. And I guess over the years of really diving deep with my clients, I find that within three to four sessions, or I make them do it weekly because you want to just keep on working with that can of worms. You don't want to suppress it and then have to work with it again. So three to four weeks um, is enough to really shift stuff. And that's when people start to feel good. And it's also about how willing they are because sometimes people are so unwilling to acknowledge the uncomfortable, the negative, the anger, the jealousy, the betrayal, because they so want to move forwards and they can sometimes block the process. But I like to just pull them up on it and tell them, you know, you're slowing this down. If you want to move through this, I can move through it fast with you, but you have to surrender to the process. You have to do the ugly cries. You have to just sweat, poos, vomits, whatever, Uh, let it all out. And you've got to be comfortable with it. So I, yeah, I so relate to everything that you're sharing here. And I'm really curious, your, your clients that you are challenged with around perfection how does that show up? How does that block the process? This is because a lot of my clients are recovering perfectionists, recovering people pleasers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what I find it, and I know we do two different things, but when it, when it comes to just mm-hmm. that necessary unpacking in some of these circumstances, yeah. I'll run into situations where it, a, a client is just not wanting to go deep into one part of the process because of the perfection, because they want to just move right forward and all the things. And so you experience, I'm sure you do, but when you experience that, how do you support a client with that and call them in or, or reroute the process? Yeah. So a big thing that I ask them about is, you know, you've come to me to help you with this and this is what I feel you need to do. And I know it's not comfortable, but what is more uncomfortable? You staying with the issues that you've got now, this state of perfectionism, like how is that perfectionism actually serving you? Because I think, you know, it's not, it's paralyzing you at times. So do you want to stay with this or do you want to try something that's temporarily uncomfortable and might absolutely just clear the way for you? So I guess it's that painting the picture. And then this is where I love using Ayurvedic doshas as well is, um, the client personality. So the kapha type person, which is that more solid built person, usually is a little bit more challenging to work with. They don't like to make fast change. And so for me, I just understand that they need more of that support role, maybe um, a little bit of a gentler approach, but they also do like the odd challenge. And so when I get them to understand themselves a little bit better, then they understand, okay, I might not make these fast progresses. But, you know, if they change their mind, then we, then we run with that. Or the Vata personality, which is that really lean, wiry person that never actually puts on weight um, unless they're very dysfunctional, but they tend to get overwhelmed. So I sort of pace it with them. I, I pick the personality of the client. I love working with pitters because they want to get the results fast because they want that end result. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're willing to do whatever it takes and they do everything that you tell them. They're very goals driven, mm-hmm. but I know how to work with the other personalities too. So it's probably been more aware of who is the ideal client. And I usually screen people. So I work with people over 12 weeks because I'm not just about getting you to a place of feeling good. It's working, you know, that iceberg analogy, you can see the iceberg, which is all the problem. And then you, that iceberg melts. It looks like there's nothing there, but then there's all this rubbish underneath. And so when you feel good is when we can deal with all of that junk and all of that rubbish. Mm. And usually, as I say, it's that first four weeks, which is maybe a little bit messy, but quite cathartic. Some people say it's like a drug experience for those of them, you know, who've maybe done ayahuasca or mm-hmm. DMT and all that mushrooms, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then usually the later half of the coaching that we go through is pretty cruisy. There's the odd emotion that comes up because now there's space for it and we work with it. 
but they've learned the techniques. They know that it'll be over so much quicker if they just drop into it and allow it. Yeah, I love that you said that there's so much space for it because that's one of the most beautiful parts about doing the work. Once you actually have gone through the process and you've you've revisited and done the healing, it does create all of this space to really be able to move forward and focus on where you are now and where you're heading. I'm curious about anxiety. How does this show up in your practice? How do you support clients with it? A lot of women in this community struggle with anxiety specifically, which tends to be more future thinking rather than living in the past, as you know. So where do you support clients with that? And yeah, just your thoughts on anxiety in general. Yeah. So I was just talking to someone about this earlier because often people will come to me with their issues. And so one example I use is anxiety in social situations. And traditionally, most people would work on positive mantras, positive thoughts, imagining what you want to be like in that social situation. And they deal with the problem that that person thinks is a problem. But I say this is just a manifestation of your emotional cup being too full. And so this is where you can get all these weird symptoms that you can't actually explain. So I'm interested in what your issues are, be it physically or things with anxiety, fears and phobias but I won't focus on them. I'm more interested in your emotional history and what you haven't dealt with. And once you start to deal with all that baggage, often the anxiety or the fear just goes away. That is so interesting. I love that. I love that concept. And it makes so much sense to me if you're, I mean, I'm kind of visualizing this as like a timeline and really just going back and relooking at all the things on the timeline to eventually bring you to this place where the future isn't so shaky and the forecasting for it isn't it isn't this fear-based vision anymore so yeah exactly and it's also just catching people who are living very short term and constantly cleaning up the mess and working day to day it's like just go back I know that this seems like this is a waste of time but deal with that stuff you can clear it very quickly within a matter of weeks And then you can move forwards and then you can future think. And I think also um, anxiety around what's going to happen in the future is getting really clear on your foundation. So building your foundation, which again takes a bit of work and reflecting on. So what are your values? What are your strengths? What do you actually want your life to look like? Mm -hmm. And I get people to do these exercises. And another one is what's the legacy you want to leave behind? So if you were to die, are you happy with what, what you're doing right now? Yeah, I love value values work. I, I do that often with clients as well too, just because it's it's so important and it's one of those pieces of the puzzle in our lives that isn't really reinforced in the cultures that we lived in that we live in. And yeah. all of this other stuff gets in the way of really helping us remember what our values are at our core. So how do you t- how do you typically do values work with your clients? Um, I have a worksheet that I give them and it's got a series (laughs) of questions on it and it is amazing at how challenging some people find it, but how eye-opening it is as well. Mm -hmm. So it's really asking them, you know, when was the last time they remembered that they were truly happy? And for some people, it's like, this is before I was married and before I had kids, but I can't change that because I've got a partner and I've got kids. It's like, that's okay, but you just want to cultivate how did that feel in your body? And, you know, maybe what are you not doing in your life that you used to allow yourself to do in that previous Mm -hmm. life? Um, Some other questions. I think some people find it hard to think about the positives um, so I do ask them the negative questions like what don't you like who don't you like and what qualities don't you like in them that's so interesting because when I have my clients go through this process a lot of them will say well it's easier to figure out what I don't like what my values aren't versus what my values yeah. are yes yeah and, and I think that there's so there's so much to be learned from that as well too and I, I think that there's some relief that we experience when we don't feel like we have to hold all of that to us and we can't just let it go if, if it's not important to us. There's something yeah. freeing about that, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And so many people just don't know what their values are, which is why they just go and say yes to a billion things and then get overwhelmed. But if you know your values and I say, just pick your top five, you can base every decision off that. Like, does this meet my values? 
if it's a no, just say no. And so yeah. many people have difficulty saying no. <laughs> Can you talk about that? Do you, boundary setting. How, how do you help somebody set a boundary? How do you explain what a healthy boundary is and just mm-hmm. the general protocol to get somebody comfortable with the habit of, of using that consistently in their life? Yeah. I think a lot of people who I find have difficulty saying no is that they know that they're real people pleasers and they're worried about what the other person will think. So one element of it is just practice saying no, Mm. (laughs) but also prioritizing what you need to get done in your day, prioritizing your values and knowing that saying yes right now is not serving you and it's causing you more stress. Um, So yeah, it really comes back to values for me. Yeah, I, I love, I think that's great that, and honestly, just that exercise, practicing saying no, that's an actionable for everybody listening. That is a takeaway. That's something that you can actually use from this conversation and, and put into practice. And I would love your thoughts on this too, but notice what comes up when you say no. Like, how does that feel in the body? What are you, is your heart beating faster? Is your stomach getting tight? Are you like getting a a clenched throat? Like what's coming up? So how do you, how would you recommend supporting somebody who is, let's say, just taking this, this action item from this conversation and they're with that uncomfortable emotion? They're <laughs> they're yep. sweating profusely through their shirt. They've just said <laughs> no. How do you actually support yourself in that moment if you're not working with somebody simultaneously? Yes, yeah. And just a comment that you reminded me of is when you do this work on releasing emotions and becoming more emotionally aware, you go from being the person who gets frustrated with your body for giving it physical symptoms or not looking the way you want it to, to actually getting amused with any ailments or injuries that you're presented with. Cause you see it as an opportunity to look deeper and oh, I love work that. with stuff that's coming up. So yeah, I am big on sensation. Whenever I'm taking someone through that emotion, like you said, think about saying no to that person that I always say yes to and what sensation comes up in your body and different parts of the body represent different things and allow that sensation to be there. So one of the techniques that I give my clients to do, which I usually facilitate for them, but then they go away and they learn, um, they do it themselves, is if it's really nerve-wracking to go and say no to that person, practice this scenario in your head. So practice that you were speaking, like say I wanted to say no to you for this podcast. <laughs> and I'm like, oh God, what do I say? And I would probably just be avoiding you. But what I would do is I would go in my own space and I would imagine you there, Caitlin. And I would have a conversation with you out loud of saying no to you. And it wouldn't just be like, no, you know, because sometimes people do just blurt it out. They're like, I've got to say no. So I'm just going to say no, but they do it with this wrong tone and it comes across the wrong way. So yeah, how could I politely decline your invitation if I didn't want to do it? Mm-hmm. And I know that actually by saying no, I'm honoring my own values. Like if I was too busy, um, but also I'm not wasting your time. <laughs> Yeah, because you wouldn't be fully present here. And and that is, you know, talk about people pleasing and just the emotions that go into that as well, too. And when we people please, we're essentially, I've said this before on on the podcast, but it is more selfish than we think because we're worried Mm -hmm. about the feelings that we're going to experience in being uncomfortable if the person doesn't like us or doesn't agree with us or is upset with us in some way. And so it's, it's more concern about our emotional state versus the other person. And if we're just saying yes all the time and we're really not interested in it, then it's, it's really sacrificing the emotional space that we're having with the other person as well too. Oh, absolutely. And so, so with this, you keep on practicing the conversation until that sensation dissipates from your body and you don't feel like you're going to burst out into tears if you say no to this person. And they're like, what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah. That's <laughs> fine. I'll do something else. And I think people actually find it inspiring when you can say no to them. Like I always have people say, so how do you say no to people? Like I just say it. (laughs) It's not a priority in my life. I've got more important things right now. Like it's not that I don't want to hang out with that person. Maybe it is that I don't want to, but I know that it's going to cause more stress to me if I go and 
distract myself socially and catch up with that person or take on some event that doesn't serve me. Okay. But let's, uh, let's break this down a little bit because I'm sure that you, you don't just say no. So for anybody who is listening to this, what are some creative ways that you can say no, that might be supportive of the situation that you're in? Does anything come to mind? Yeah, so a common one that I find I work with and myself personally and my clients is always getting invited out for a walk, a cup of coffee or a catch up. Mm-hmm. And so it might be by a text message or a phone call. And I just say, oh, look, I've got a lot of work that I need to catch up on. It's stressing me out. So mm-hmm. let's do this another time mm-hmm. or I'll be free in a few weeks and I make sure that I circle back to them. Mm-hmm. So I give them a bit of an explanation and a bit of a context, bit of context as to why I'm saying no. Mm-hmm. And if someone ever says no to me and I can pick up that something else is going on for them, I just ha- come from a place of understanding like, mm, okay, maybe they're just not ready to tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, maybe they've just heard that a family member has been diagnosed with cancer and all I can manage to say is no. What about if you've committed to something and then you're going back and saying no to somebody and possibly even in a a time-sensitive situation, what if you've committed to coffee with a friend and you wake up that morning and your to-do list is full or you just aren't feeling like you just don't want to go? How do you actually say no in those situations? Yeah. So I try and avoid creating that situation in the first place. (laughs) Good good thought. Absolutely. And that would be, I do like to plan and I like to not overcommit myself. So first I would find myself in that situation, which yeah, might be a little bit uncomfortable, but I would just say, look, I'm really sorry. Um, I have overcommitted myself. I've just got stuff that I need to do. Is it okay if we postpone? Um, or can we catch up next week? And you make sure that you don't do that again the following week. Otherwise, that friend is probably going to ditch you and you're going to become the unreliable person. And so this comes back to your values. Like, why did you try and fit that person in when actually you had all this other stuff come up? So I think it's okay every now and then, every once in a while, if something comes up out of the blue and you have to cancel on someone. But do it sooner rather than later, not last minute, because they've made plans in their day. So it is just really respecting that they have made time for you as much as you've made time for them. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love all of this. I don't, I don't think we've ever had a talk like this on the podcast before. One other thing that has come up for me recently, I actually read this um, in, in the past week, I, I think that I want to share is just the concept of you don't, you don't have to say, you can say no without having something else to do. Like you're allowed to do that. Permission to say no and lie on the couch. And all you have to say to the other person Mm -hmm. is, I'm not able to tonight. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm not able to, or I'm not available. And your availability could be watching Netflix and that you don't have to tell that to the, like you don't, it doesn't require a further explanation. You're fine yeah. just saying I'm not available or I'm not able yeah. to. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you know, I have said that to people. I'm just like, no, I'm just like really enjoying my space on my own right now. Mm-hmm. Have a great night. Mm-hmm. There's so much power when we are able to just express ourselves that way and be open and honest. And it, it just allows for so so much more depth in conversations and relationships Mm. because we're able to just understand each other in a different way. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest frustration that people have is that why didn't they just tell me? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So let's just be more honest with one another. Um, And yeah, by saying no, a lot of your aches and pains might actually be alleviated. Your headaches might go away. Or I say that whenever people have got shoulder issues, that's lack of boundaries and hip and pelvis is also boundary issues. Love that. Let's talk confrontation. Somebody is it's just burning inside of them. They're either holding a grudge or they're playing a story in their mind. They, they're just feeling like a boundary has been crossed and they need to confront somebody, but they're terrified to do it. What's the first step mm. that they take and, and how do you move forward in a way without losing your mind? 
Yeah, sure. So then I come back to that whole, that verbal conversation that you have on your own Mm -hmm. is so you know that you want to confront that person. And now it's not always appropriate to confront the person. And there's a few situations that I find where people have got burning emotions inside of them, that they know that are eating themselves alive inside. (laughs) But either the person that is making them feel so angry or whatever is dead. So they can't actually go and speak to them. Um, they don't know where they are in the world. They can't locate them uh, mentally. They're not there. So maybe they've got a mental health issue or maybe they've had a stroke or they've got some sort of neurological disorder so they can't actually comprehend, they can't communicate or emotionally that person is just not ready to hear. They haven't done the emotional work that you've done. They're not ready to hear this and they put that wall up and you're like, oh man, you know, I'm trying to do this, but what do I do when I'm ready to talk to that person and they're not? So um, in this case, or regardless, you can shift a lot of stuff in your own space. And this is bringing that person into your mind's eye. So it might be going back to that argument or visualizing that argument and feel the sensation that comes up in your body. Maybe your throat gets stuck or your heart starts to feel a little bit funny in that heart area. And you speak to them as if they are there in front of you. And you might stumble over your words, you might stutter, but you just allow space for that. And you can keep rehearsing this until you feel really good. Because as I said, sometimes you will have some really nasty things and you need to, in this space, allow yourself to have the nasty words to them. Mm. So swear at them, verbally abuse them, but not to their face. Mm -hmm. Get all that off your chest, allow it. And then usually you go, "Mm, that's not actually appropriate to say. And they'll probably block me because I'm verbally abusing them. So let's filter those words out. And then you usually wheedle down to exactly what it is you need to say. Um, So I have helped people have difficult, difficult conversations with people in their life, but I have them do it in the space with me. I'm kind of just a facilitator. They're speaking as if that person's in front of them and they do it over and over again until they shift all that emotion. Cause sometimes they're sobbing so hard that I can't even understand what they're saying. So when they go and confront that person, that person's not going to have any idea of what they're actually trying to communicate to them. But, and sometimes people feel like, you know what, I don't need to deal with this anymore because I've processed this. I've dealt with it. But if they do go and confront that person and they have a conversation, usually they don't come across with that really um, negative energy that just puts the wall up. And so the person can actually sit there and hear them. Mm, that's so powerful. One, one thing that comes to mind as well too is we all run into those, those challenges sometimes where it's really a boundary that needs to be set. And that's where the confrontation is. And if you're new to boundary setting and you're caught up in the perfectionism, people pleasing cycle, and you you are slowly making changes and all these things, boundary setting can feel like one of the most anxiety provoking things to do because it requires confrontation and it requires actually expressing how how you feel and being direct and being intentional in conversations and running the risk of the other person not liking you, right? Or yes. <laughs> or not agreeing with what you're saying. So how how would you suggest somebody handle that when they are gathering up the courage to set a boundary and mm-hmm. they've done the work to have this rehearsed conversation beforehand and they're in the moment with the person, they're setting the boundary and it's just not going according to plan. The other person's fighting back because they haven't done the emotional work themselves or they're just completely caught off guard because they're used to the other person just saying yes to everything and it's kind of new territory for the relationship. So how would you recommend somebody having the confidence and the courage in those moments where they're braving that, that boundary setting and not not necessarily being met the way that they're intending to be. Yeah. So one thing is I say to people, sometimes you've just got to give it a go and see what happens. It may be amazing. You might get the result that you're after or it might be terrible, but you won't know. Um, but you've got to give it a go. And as I said, sometimes you go through this emotional processing in your own space and you don't actually feel like you need to confront the person because the other thing that I get people to do is they speak to the person, 
but then they speak back what it is they need to hear. And sometimes it's just really strange, but it evolves that they come from a place of understanding as to why that person behaves the way they do. And Maybe they know some of their history. Maybe that person grew up in a really abusive environment and they understand that actually they don't have the emotional capacity to deal with what they might have to say to them. Now, whenever you do the emotional work and you get to understand yourself better and stand up for your values and yourself and speak up, um, usually you're not as triggered by other people's reactions. So even though it might not go down so well on their behalf and they, they might just be berating you, you can actually sit there and you can listen to it and you can actually see it for their own issue and not take it personally yourself. So what I say is that just constantly work on yourself and see it as an opportunity to look deeper to the point where you don't get triggered by people. Yeah, I, I think that's so powerful. And also what we were saying before too is curiosity and just going into those situations almost like you're looking at your body from an out-of-body experience where you're just the observer mm -hmm. and you're noticing, okay, this is uncomfortable. What does discomfort feel like in my body? What's happening physically, mentally, emotionally, all the things before you enter the conversation, during the conversation, yep. afterwards, especially doing the work intentionally. There's so much we can learn about ourselves and how we react to those uncomfortable situations. And yeah. the more information that we gather around that, the more confidence we build moving into those those type of situations moving forward. Yeah, exactly. It's um it's incredible just the changes and as you say like you know you work with binge eaters, people who are just like on controlled healthy diets is recognizing the link. So when you want to go and binge or when you want to go and starve yourself of food, what's just happened in your life? Mhm. Mm so who, who have you thought about? Who have you just bumped into in the street? Who have you just had a conversation with that maybe you didn't want to? And how has that triggered you? And now this is the emotional reaction. So yeah, controlled healthy eating is just as bad as drugs and alcohol. And Absolutely. It's a coping tool. And like we were just saying before we hit record, it's never about the food. It's never about mm -hmm. body image and our reflection in the mirror. It's always about the root cause, which is our emotional health and the emotion yep. that we're suppressing. And, and that's why, you know, I know we're both big believers that this takes time to heal. It's not a bandaid. It's not a quick fix. It's not a diet book that you can, yep. you know, get off the shelf or a, like a three-step solution to solve the problem. It's, it's really a lot of unpacking and processing and, and learning new skills to be able to meet these emotional needs in healthy ways. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we just get caught up in thinking, okay, I'm doing a diet, I'm doing a course. And again, it's the doing. And when people look back, they've been dieting for the last 10 years. Imagine if you did 10 years of personal development work, it wouldn't even take that long. As I said, you know, four weeks, people can shift a lot. Three months, people can shift a huge amount. Absolutely. I, it's my hope and my prayer. <laughs> and I, I'm, I know that you have felt this way from your own experience too, just from everything that you struggled in, in your body image story. But yeah, like having gone through that 10, 15, 20 years of the struggle, trying to, to fix the problem rather than work through the emotional aspect of it and the personal yeah. development. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely lighting a fire for me to, to continue doing the work for other people's to heal it. And I know it is the same yes. for you too. Yeah. Yeah. Channeling that anger. That's <laughs> <Yes. laughs> so good. Yeah, the pit is we need to channel our anger. <laughs> I love it. Jin, this conversation is gold. I wasn't even expecting it to go this way. Thank you so much for all of your knowledge and your wisdom and and just being super honest with your personal body image story too. I really appreciate it and I can't wait for everybody to listen and connect with you. Where can everybody find you? Mm, so I guess where I share all of this stuff, it's theartoflisteningtoyourbody.com. And I do also have a podcast where I share little insights to help you educate yourself and learn more about this whole mind-body connection. But what I love is I've got pain story interviews where I interview people who have been through significant illnesses, so cancers or autoimmune um, issues or major injuries that have really made them hit rock bottom. Mm -hmm. But these people have made the emotional connection and acknowledge what they've had to work through and they've been very open and honest about their journey 
knowing that it will help people who are questioning, you know, whether or not there's an end in sight. Mm. Um, I also am on Instagram and Facebook under the art of listening to your body. And on my Facebook page, I do have a free community group where I jump in live um, twice a week and I answer people's questions. I talk about different um, things. Again, just a different way to interact with people. And I do hold the odd uh, live masterclass where you can come on live. I don't record them because I want people to be able to ask their questions, feel safe and know that it's not going to be spread over the internet. And I also hold an online training for practitioners. So health coaches, nutritionists, naturopaths, physical therapists, counselors, anyone who knows that there is more to the skills that they've learned and they want to delve deeper into the emotional stuff with their clients and they really want to help them process it and just stop giving them coping mechanisms. So they might be stuck with their clients and they, yeah, they just want to get in there deeper. So I teach people, um, we do a lot of live coaching and they get individual sessions themselves because I make them go through the process themselves, feel the discomfort, but feel the power of the work. And then they'll be able to push their clients to go through the same. And it's an incredible environment. We get to learn so much off one another. And yeah, I record those consults and everyone gets to watch them in the group. And it's just fascinating what comes up and the shifts that these practitioners have in their personal life and their professional life. So I run that training twice a year, but you can find details about that or message me about it. And then I do um, one-to-one coaching with people only over a 12-week period of time. And I'm just about to take people on board for February 2021. So I only take on maybe about four to six people, um, four to six, not 46 people (laughs) at a time to make sure I can give you that time and energy. And yeah, I, you can jump on a free call with me just to find out if it's the right fit. Cause I will tell you if I don't think I'm the right fit for you. As you should. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Everything is absolutely incredible. What you just shared. And I am kind of blown away. I actually didn't know that you had all of those options. So well done. And I'm so excited for everybody to connect with you and just get to know you even more. Thank you again. This was a powerful conversation and I am just really, really grateful that you took the time to come on and and share your wisdom, wisdom so authentically with everybody. Oh, thank you so much. And I just love it when the conversation flows and I love meeting people like you who are just on the same level with this and more people need to know about this work. So yeah, you keep doing what you're doing as well. Thank you, love. Really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thanks. That's our show. Thank you to our producer, Stephanie Olea, our show manager, Shayla Anderson, and our incredible guest, If you want to stay connected and learn more about our guest today, click the show notes of this episode. And if this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend or leave a review so that we can continue to destigmatize these important conversations around our relationship with food and body and spread inspiration to more women. One last thing, please don't forget to hit subscribe so that you can save time and stay on top of each new episode every week. I'm sending you so much love, confidence, and strength. Talk to you soon.